You're probably familiar with Alexa. Alexa, what do you do? I can play music, answer questions, get the news on weather, create to-do lists and much more. Or the Google Home. Hey Google, what's on my calendar today? You have one event called House to Yourself. And most likely Siri. Hey Siri, read my schedule. You have 25 appointments at 7.15. These digital personas are called a number of things. Chatbots, voice bots, virtual assistants. They're an intelligence built into your smartphone or smart speaker system that help you with those tedious everyday tasks. And although they go by different names, they all serve the same purpose to make your life easier. But according to Josie Young, an artificial intelligence researcher based in the UK, there's another trait that many of them share. They're all women. Siri, Alexa, Cortana, you know, they're not an androgynous robot voice. These have white women's voices. These have women's names. Why is that? There's some very, actually some research from the 90s looking at how people ascribe human characteristics to technology. So there's been this really lazy design sort of approach that comes out of that that says, okay, well then we need to make technology that feels human and replicates human characteristics. Then there was some other kind of, again, slightly dubious research looking at how people felt more comfortable being given that kind of personal assistant support by women. So they kind of conflated these two things. All right, we're going to ascribe a human characteristics to this anyway. And people prefer to have women do these kinds of tasks for them. Therefore, all of these bots must be women. The imagining of assistant technology as women, Josie explains, goes far beyond the chatbots on the market to depictions in film such as Scarlett Johansson's portrayal of the artificial intelligence, Samantha, in Her. So how can I help you? Oh, it's just more that everything just feels disorganized. That's all. You mind if I look through your hard drive? And characters in the world of gaming, from Edie in the Mass Effect franchise... Edie is the phonetic pronunciation of E-D-I. That is an acronym for Enhanced Defense Intelligence. To Cortana a beloved AI character in the Halo series who serves as your advisory and assistant. And yes, the Cortana in the game was the inspiration behind Microsoft's chatbot. Hey Cortana, what time is my lunch with Tony today? You have lunch with Tony at CJ's from 12.30 to 1.30pm. The ongoing portrayal of subservient technologies as women, to Josie, raises some massive red flags. It's steeped in gender stereotypes. It reproduces gender stereotypes. It's steeped in a patriarchal society that is really struggling to get past this idea of women as objects. It's also really boring. We've got the greatest minds hoovering up all of these amazing ideas. And the best I can come up with is like female voice spots that you know are masquerading as white women. Like, really? That's it? This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show, why is artificial intelligence sexist? To answer this question, 
we have to take a step back and not only look at who's making the tech, but what these technologies say about us. It's a classic example in gaming spaces. A lot of the, the early designers of some of these games were young men who had the really good coding talents and the capacities and also had certain fantasies that they could exercise and put, put into these devices. This is Teresa Anderson, Associate Professor of Data Science and Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. Teresa says while STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, have always been industries saturated with men. I don't know that individually I would think of them as misogynist, but we're often in spaces where it's perfectly acceptable to represent women in a certain way. And you design what you think is appropriate based on the world and the values that you have. Someone mentioned to me... Josie Young. If you look at all these disruptive digital services and apps coming out of Silicon Valley, it's basically all this stuff that these dudes probably had their mums doing for them before they left home, (laughs) which I think is a very dim view of Silicon Valley, but quite funny. But it is absolutely so obvious that it's been a team of men who've produced something like a chatbot. Josie says this is clearest when a chatbot responds to your question, the responses of which have been scripted. For example, Alexa Cortana, there was some research a couple of years ago looking at how they responded to sexual harassment. And they were not very good at managing it at all. They would respond evasively to the human user. They would respond flirtatiously. One of the responses was, and this was the sort of more flirtatious one, I'd blush if I could, which I thought was it was very coy, um, very flirtatious. There's absolutely no uh, <laughs> boundary setting there at all. Thanks for the feedback was another one. They didn't have a response to sexual harassment that actually upheld um, the principles of saying, well, you know, that sounds like sexual harassment and that's not okay and you shouldn't talk to people like that. It was sort of an implied um, acceptance of sexual harassment. Not only are chatbots designed with patriarchal attitudes towards women, Josie is concerned these technologies will start feeding prejudice back to the user. The way they're designed and the way that they respond to us and our behaviour, I think very slowly is going to set cultural norms around what's appropriate. And so if you've got a chatbot that doesn't respond to sexual harassment in an appropriate way or in a way that helps to you know, eliminate sexual harassment in society, then it kind of tacitly endorses it and amplifies it and reproduces it. If it's seemingly okay to say it to an AI, it should be fine to say it to a human. Yeah, and and an AI that's presented as a human. You know, these have, you know, white women's voices. These have women's names. And again, it's a scale. Like, because it can access so many people at once, what's the social cultural impact? And are these technologies re-endorsing what we've been trying to eliminate for a really long time? As Teresa Anderson said before, she doesn't believe designers set out to write problematic responses. You don't go out to make a chatbot technology sexist. Yeah, yeah. 
but she does believe that many of those designing the technology fail to see how their tech could negatively affect the user, not just because they're men who've likely never experienced sexual harassment, but because their methods and practice tell them what they are doing is fundamentally correct. I started in physics and I have great admiration for a lot of people who work in the hard sciences and in the biological sciences and I know they're not with ill intent. But a lot of the techniques have have tended to see objectivity as something requiring you to focus on evidence in front of you. To really dumb that down, the assumption that the numbers are always right in every respect. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of the methods that we're learning are focused on the technology and they're focused on the numbers and there has been this tendency to remove that from the human. I think that happens in lots of different contexts, particularly when it comes to technology. So the investment that goes into building a system, the investment that goes into building a room like this, um, you're looking for evidence to make sure that, that tools are used appropriately. But the techniques that they're using have separated us further from, from the very human core. By removing the human from technology, technology has thrown exactly how human we are back in our faces. Tech perpetuating human bias and prejudice has snowballed in the digital age. So much so, it's gathered both international and political attention. See over and over again, whether it's FaceTime, they always have these racial inequities that get translated because algorithms are still made by human beings. Right. And those algorithms are still pegged to basic human assumptions right. and automated assumptions. If you don't fix the bias, then you're automating the bias. Mm. And that gets even more dangerous. But even though this conversation is picking up speed, there's no rule book for designers and developers to follow, meaning they're not obliged to consider how their technology could be, for example, sexist. Teresa Anderson is trying to change this. She's part of a group applying for NGO status that are developing a framework for ethical AI. The framework would include a list of ethical standards that developers need to meet when designing whatever they're making. This is terrain that is in some ways uncharted. One of the most important standards, and Teresa suggests one of the most difficult, is for developers to recognise that their tech will never be perfect and can always affect the user. With chatbots this could be a poorly worded response to a sensitive situation. Recognising equally that, yeah, I'm going to release something out there, I'm going to see how it goes, but I'm going to recognise that I have no control over what's going to happen in the wild. All I know is that things are not likely to go according to plan. Being open to the fact you'll make mistakes and that your technology may result in something unexpected, Teresa argues, is an opportunity as it forces you to consider where you've gone wrong and who you've left out. And this gets back to the idea of of encouraging more women in STEM. I do feel that there's this extraordinary power in getting different kinds of people in those spaces. The idea of what I called making the invisible visible, being alert to 
who and what is misrepresented, underrepresented and not represented. It's not only an opportunity to address the gender balance, it also opens up the design team, introducing new players with expertise beyond the numbers and data. If you recognise that we're always going to have blind sides, it's minimised by building a more inclusive team. Whether it's a sociologist that's also a coder, or whether it's recognising that if, that I can't just think of this as a technology. I have to think of this in socio-technical terms. However, Teresa does realise that many of the big-wig developers would absolutely not want to point out where they've gone wrong with their products. Do you think those who are really at the top of the game here in developing these technologies have a willingness to engage because obviously their measures of success might be quite different. A measure of success might be how many of these can we get into people's homes? How much money can we make? Whereas perhaps the fact that all of the chatbot technologies are gendered and give crappy responses if someone's reaching out about experiencing domestic violence, that might not necessarily be a success indicator. They might be like, okay, that's bad, we don't want it. But their focus is elsewhere. Is production and getting this out there and being first on the scene sort of thing. Um, I think there will always be those sorts of situations. I mean, you can think in any in any sector that there are products or organizations or attitudes where it feels like, oh, we'll do anything at any cost. You know, everyone else be damned. We're looking out for ourselves. What I'm optimistic about at the moment that I am more optimistic about than I was a few years ago is that there is a growing call at a number of different levels for more responsible approaches to these things. And I think part of it is because there is this genuine concern that there's a lot of power given sometimes to a chatbot that is replacing a human. So in the first instance, it means that there'll be fewer real people to have empathy to be able to deal with a situation. So domestic family violence is a classic situation. Do I want an automaton talking me through something, even if that automaton has access to enormous resources and and has the computational capacity that a human could never have? It is still really hard to code empathy in. And a human, especially a human who has been, who has lived an experience, that can't be fully encoded. There are still spaces there where there's a need for a human. And I think the market is starting to respond to that too. The ones that are doing better and that I think will prove themselves to be more sustainable are the ones that have actually tried to think about how structurally and institutionally they can they can start to enact and come up with better systems. Is that always as a result of a tipping point? I don't want to I don't like extremes. I don't like to say always, but I do think that it does take moments like that to cause us to reflect. You know, sometimes it takes an accident for you to go, "Oh my god, you know, that's what I'm doing." Um at a personal level but also at an organizational level because why would you change anything? And again, if we go back to data, it's not easy to make a case for changing, but it is getting harder to ignore that there are changes happening around us. While Teresa believes an ethical framework would make AI more inclusive, she's unsure if such a framework should be mandatory. So my worry in those cases is that when you start to set rules, first off, it's like waving a red flag to a bull. 
you start to encourage people to think, oh, how are we going to get around this? You know, again, because innovation is about, you know, breaking the rules. I'm also not sure, so when you start to create regulations, if they become too fixed, it becomes problematic. You give someone a checklist and they think by ticking those boxes, they've done everything they Walk can. Walk away. Yeah, I've done my compliance training. You know, I've, I've gone to all the anti-harassment, all the anti-bullying. You know, I've ticked the boxes. Look, we've got you know, four, four people on our team from different ethnic backgrounds. Great, we're diverse. We don't have any unconscious bias That's anymore. That's exactly right. You know, I can remember in the early days when I was working in HCI, when I'd show up in a room as a, as a female with technology. What's the, HCI? Oh, so human-computer interaction. So it's now user experience. And usually the group was run by an older man and they used to get so excited. They're like, oh my God, we have a woman in the room. It's like, what? So now you tick that box? Is that what it is? I mean, it wasn't malintended because they were excited that finally they had, they had some diversity in there. That is my big worry about saying we'll just need one regulatory framework or, you know, we have this standard and, and that's it, end of story. But there has to be something in between. As long as humans have biases, our technology will too. However, the quest for the ethical, neutral chatbot is underway. Hi, I'm Q. Last week, creative agency Virtue launched Q, the world's first genderless AI voice. Think of me like Siri or Alexa, but neither male nor female. Not only does Q highlight how many voice bots by default are women, but the voice itself has larger aspirations. For me to become a third option for voice assistance, I need your help. Share my voice with Apple, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. And together we can ensure that technology recognizes us all. AI researcher Josie Young is working on a similar project. As the creator of the feminist chatbot design process, she's looking at alternatives to the standard gender assignment of chatbots currently on the market. Do you think there's a market for these products? I think so. And I, and I think it comes back to, you know, using these kinds of tools that, you know, prompt us to think more ethically and critically. They help us create more innovative stuff. That's what we need to be doing now, actually, is really focusing on how can we showcase all the really cool stuff that is born out of, you know, your more ethical feminist approaches. I think we also need to broaden who are the organisations who are deploying these things rather than just look to Facebook, look to Google as the kite marks of innovation. Technologically, they are, but in terms of, again, that social impact side, it's, that's not where their strengths are at the moment. And we need to get away from these really reductive old ideas that really don't give us anything new to work with. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Digital Futures. And we also have a website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.